So as we began our MOVE initiative and in talking about uh, this generosity, we talked about it in terms of moving hearts and moving home and moving beyond. And uh, before we get into our teaching time this morning, we have a, an opportunity to focus on moving beyond. Uh, back in, 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 the, in the back sunroom of our house, there's a picture of me and my little league hockey team in 1970. So that's going back a couple of years. And there's a guy in that picture with a big head full of hair standing two players down for me who later on became an elder at Central Presbyterian Church in Clayton and called me one day and said, hey, we're looking for a youth director. Would you like to come to St. Louis? And then when I came to Green Tree, he was one of the original elders uh, to help start Green Tree. His name's Jeff Peters. You're not going to recognize him without his head of hair. So that's why I wanted to, to say that before he comes and shares this morning. But Jeff and, uh, Jeff and Becky, five years ago, a little over five years ago, moved to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And uh, they've had an opportunity to minister there in a church and, and get plugged into that community. But God has called them to go to Haiti over the next few years. And as we think about moving beyond, uh, this is kind of one of our own, one of the family who uh, moved beyond us to Hilton Head, which was okay, broke our hearts a little bit. We're okay with that. But now is sensing God's call to go and to minister in a, in a very unique way. And so while we're focusing on, you know, bringing our first gifts this morning, we thought, wouldn't it be great for them to come and remind us that this is, this is more than a building at Kirkwood, this is more than Green Tree Community Church, this is the kingdom of God. So Jeff and Becky, thank you for coming and for sharing with us, and thanks for letting me pick on you about your hair. I'm sorry. It's all right, Tom. <laughs> you can get me back. You can have the last word. <laughs> hey, are we on? Good to go? Okay. Um, it's really good to be back. Some things have never changed, and one is that I am not a public speaker. Jeff is, so I'm going to be very short. Um, we're just here to encourage you in, in how our story parallels your story as a church in this MOVE initiative. Um, we'll be at a table in the back after the service, and we'd love to greet you guys, people we've known for 30 or more years, and meet some new folks that have just come to Green Tree. Um, so come get more information about Hope Medical, and you'll hear a little bit about the Browers. They are going to be here as well. Okay. Well, as Tom mentioned, we moved to Hilton Head about five years ago, and honestly, it was primarily, well, it was, it was pretty much all for selfish reasons. Uh, there really wasn't a strong impetus or, or spiritual leading that we felt. Uh, it was a place that we'd always wanted to live, and job circumstances and things were such that it, it was an easy time to go. So we went. And I found myself um, spending an awful lot of time trying to get a couple of businesses started and together, you know, maybe making an income from the two of them combined. And realized one day that I was spending all of my time and energy basically working to support a lifestyle and to live in that place. And I thought, you know, it just seems like kind of a waste, so, God, I'm really not content. So, if you can help me understand, if this is where you want us to be, if this is where we're to minister, if this is where we're to live, then give us contentment. But if it's not, would you show us what's next and where we need to go? Um, so, spent a lot of time. We were still church shopping. I must say, honestly, that Green Tree became the standard by which we measured other churches down there in terms of community of fellowship. Uh, strength of teaching and preaching, 
and just feeling loved and welcome. And fortunately, we eventually found that. But in that interim time, in that, in that time that I referred to as in the wilderness, I spent a lot of time online watching Andy Stanley videos and listening to Green Tree Sermon podcasts and a variety of other places to try to get fed. And there became a point in time where it was very clear that the message was all really focusing on one thing. One of them was an Andy Stanley video where he said, you know, you have no idea today how God may want to use you in the future. And he said, and the reality of it is, is most of us are going to miss it. We're not going to miss it intentionally, but we're going to be so busy doing what it is we do to live where we live and do what we want that we're going to miss out on what it is God wants us to do. Sounded familiar. Filed that one away. A couple of months later, we had, we had made some good friends, and I was leading a Bible study. And again, we were, I, I was lazy, and we were using Andy Stanley videos and then doing a discussion after that. That was my leadership. But there was one that was kind of a throwaway. It came as an extra in a, in a DVD series that I had purchased. And it was, talk, it's, it was called Asking Big. And if you haven't seen it, if you're not familiar with it, I recommend that you go on northpoint.org and you take 40 minutes of your life and you watch Asking Big. Because in it, what he says is, have the courage to ask God for a dream so big that the only way it's going to get accomplished is if he does it. The only way it's going to get accomplished. Sound familiar? God's given this church a dream, a vision that is so big that it's not going to happen unless God's going to accomplish it. Hard as you all might try or think that you can do it on your own, trust me, it's not going to happen if God's not in it, if God's not leading it. File that one away. Our new church, Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, we call the new pastor. Immediately, he starts preaching on living missionally. He said, you know, how is it that your life is, is being generous towards others? Preaching out of 1 Timothy 6, where, where Paul commands Timothy, encourages Timothy, exhorts all of us to be rich towards others. He said, how is it that your life is being rich towards others? He said, my vision for Hilton Head Prez is that we would be one of those churches where if we disappeared next week, we'd really be missed. And he said, for you as individuals, if you died next week, aside from your family and your very close friends, would you be missed? File that one away. So we get to the point where I'm, I'm trying to sort through all these things, and then finally, uh, uh, God brought an older gentleman in my life as a mentor, and he handed me a book called 20,000 Days. If you're not familiar with it, I strongly recommend it. And then the book, basically what he's talking about is reengineering your life. He's saying, if you look at actuari- actuarial, actuarial tables, we're, if we're lucky, we've got 30,000 days on this earth. And he wrote this book at a time when he was 54 and some months, and said, I've lived 20,000 my 30,000 days. I've got 10,000 left. And I need to be very, very purposeful about how I'm going to live it. Well, the time that I got that book was 19,998 days of my life had been lived. And so I started to read it. And God said, you need to start thinking about how you're going to spend your last five to 10,000 days. You don't know how many I'm going to give you, but you need to start getting intentional about how you're going to live it. And my friend who gave me that book said, oh, and one more thing. He said, none of us are getting out of here alive, and you're not taking any of your stuff with you. So if you're going to spend your life investing in accumulating stuff and things, he said, all you're doing is just gathering up stuff that somebody else is going to sell at a garage sale. So he said, is that really what you want to do? Well, 
And the same times, and I got to wrap up here quickly. The same time, we were asked to go on a mission trip. We thought that was our, that was our big dream, that you know we were going to do something none of us, neither one of us really ever wanted to do. Went on a mission trip to Haiti, and our lives got wrecked. So we came back and really felt a strong calling that God was telling us to go there with another family and do some work supporting a local church there. We wrestled for six months. We prayed and wrestled for six months. So my point in that is the process is as big and as important as the project. So as you go through this project that you're embarking on, don't miss out on the process and what God's going to do in you through that. Because that's as important, if not more so, than the project itself. So, here we are today, talking about moving to Haiti for a couple of years and uh, helping this church uh, to build a clinic, do community education, do a variety of different things. It is absolutely the last thing we said we ever wanted to do. And yet, we just can't not do it. Am I right? I mean, we just can't not go. So... We'd love to talk to you more about it. Please come see us, as Becky said, after the service so we can, if we haven't met you, so we can meet you, tell you a little bit more about what we believe is God's calling on our life and how's it working out. But let me leave you with this encouragement because I still consider Green Tree one of my church homes. Um, I still have a lot of great memories of of when we first started and Westminster's library and and beyond. So if, if I could be so bold, my wish is for you as a former elder is that you would live missionally and that you as a church and as individuals would be missed when God calls you home. That you would have a very, very big dream both personally and as a church. And I think God's given you that. I think he's given you a big dream and a big vision. Be excited about it. Enjoy the process. Learn from the process. Be relentless in your pursuit of God in this because there are going to be times when you're going to think he's not listening or you think you didn't hear him correctly. Be like Jesus said in the parables of the, uh, the neighbor going to the door and begging for bread. Continue to pound on the door until you know God has heard you and you've heard him. And finally, find your purpose. Find whatever it is, whatever reason God puts you on this earth at this point in time in history. It's not because you're better than the people in Haiti. So it's not because God loves you more that you live in the richest country in the world and not the poorest country in the world. It has nothing to do with that. So ask God, why am I here? Why now? Why here? And finally, you're not getting out of here alive, and you're not taking any of it with you. So live, live missionally. You leave that there. I'm actually going to put my water on it. Thinking about our last 10,000 days, Jeff and I are avid blues fans, and we used to all the time say, well, you know, we're certain in our lifetime that the blues are going to win the Stanley Cup. We're not so certain of that anymore. Time is ticking by quickly, but uh, what a great word on living intentionally and living with a purpose. Uh, So last week, Nathan kicked off our Advent series uh, looking at the passage in Matthew where the very first prophecy that Matthew speaks of was uh, God's intentionality to dwell with his people. 
Uh, you will have a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I listened to the sermon on the podcast this week and was really encouraged and inspired by Nathan's uh, taking Scripture to a very honest place and saying, you know, God is with us in the mess. God is with us in the brokenness of our lives. And he, and he talked about, you know, there, there are times when, you know, we get bad news from the doctor or our business goes poorly or our family relationships are, are strained or, or maybe non-existent. And he, and he talked about God meeting us there in that place and that God comes to, uh, to condescend to be gracious to us and to be kind to us. And that's a great message. Uh, I got terrible news this week. i working with several church planters around the country, and one of my young church planters took his life on Tuesday uh, out of despair and out of anguish. So I had a really bad week, I'll be honest with you. My, my mind is, is here, but it's, it's in other places at this moment. But I was very broken this week. I was very uh, reminded again of just you know how difficult this life can be and this world can be. And as I'm studying the passage for which I am preparing... Uh, for this Sunday, I realize that it's not just the brokenness of this world, the things that happen to us because we live where we live, uh, the, the, the disease, the, the, uh, the financial problems that can come, the, the strained human relationships, but there are times when the wounds are actually self-inflicted. There, there are times when we ignore God's promises and we ignore God's care. It's not that God isn't there for us. It's not that God hasn't laid out in his word what it means for us to live in a life where we enjoy him and love him. It's not like I could say to you, I don't really know how to be a, a good husband to Cindy because God never told me. God's laid it out very clearly. It's not like I could say, you know, I don't know how to handle my finances because God's never shared that with me. God shared all of that with me. I can't say, you know, God's never talked to me about how to live a joyful life. That's what scripture is all about. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Sometimes the world presses in on me and makes it difficult, but other times the wounds are self-inflicted. There are other times when I ignore God's word. It's kind of like the child who's, who's sitting at the dinner table and has a great meal in front of them. But in their immaturity and in their youthfulness, it just doesn't happen to be what they like at this particular moment. So they refuse to eat their dinner, and they play with it, and they try and give some of it to the dog or to the cat or whatever, and they, you know, they look for any way around uh, eating a great meal. And the wise parent at that moment doesn't say, well, let's break out the cookies and forget about the vegetables and forget about you know, all the good, healthy stuff you should eat. The wise parent says, you get this or you get nothing. You got to start with this. And afterwards, there could be something else. But because I love you and because I want the best for you and because you need to learn to trust me, you need to eat that meal. And a lot of us have been on either side of that dinner plate uh, at one time or another. What does God say to us when we push back and say, I don't want that? How does God react to us? Is Emmanuel, God with us, still with us, even in our rebellion? Is God willing to meet us even in the stubbornness of our sinful hearts? It's a question I want to wrestle with this morning. And we're going to look at an event. We're going to look at a story, an actual historical story. We're going to talk about people who, who really lived. This is not a mythological uh, story. This is a historical context in the Old Testament. We're going to look at some folks who made a bad decision and uh, ignored God's promises and how he met them. This is a, an event that happened uh, approximately 1,100 years before Jesus' first advent, before uh, the, uh, the coming of the Christ. We're going to ask the question, uh, what does it mean 
when we choose a different pathway, how does that impact our relationship with God and his care and his love for us? So we're going to be looking at one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and we are going to fly through this. We are not going to give this justice. It would take probably six weeks to really do a good sermon series on the book of Ruth, but we're going to look at the book of Ruth this morning, and I promise you 1,100 years before Jesus, there'll be a connection. We will get to it eventually. But before we dive into this passage of Scripture, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, the psalmist reminds us that the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. From generation to generation, you are loving and gracious, compassionate and kind. Father, there are many days when as disciples we, we revel in that, we, we gain deep joy and an abiding sense of peace. And, and as Jeff just challenged us, we live missionally, we live intentionally, and, and we are filled with your spirit and your word. And Lord, there are other days when we choose to go our own way. We intentionally ignore your promise and your care. And like the child at the dinner table, we think we know better. And we insist on what we want when we want it. Father, it's perhaps at at that moment more than any other when we need your presence in our lives. When we need a a heavenly Father who will not give in to our whims, to our foolishness, to our stubbornness, but will continue to love us unconditionally yet with firm direction in the Lord Jesus. So, Father, as we think about Advent and the coming of Christ and as we look at this story out of the Old Testament, I pray that we would be able to see how you bring it all together. It was clear from the the passage that Nathan preached on last week that you are with us in the brokenness of the world when when things happen to us, but it's also crucial for us to see that we can't out-sin your grace. There doesn't come a time when you turn your back on us and walk away. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning to what you want us to know. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of this important message. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to fly through the book of Ruth. Ruth is four chapters long. We're not even going to spend any time at all on chapter three. The passages will be on the screen, or you can follow along in your your own Bible. Uh, But this is a story uh, of tragedy and triumph. And I'm going to begin by simply reading the first five verses of the book of Ruth, and then we're just going to kind of hop through and make some observations as we go. But my first observation in the first five verses is a lack of trust leads to tragedy. A lack of trust leads to tragedy. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrites of Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orphan. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons and her husband. Lack of trust leads to tragedy. God had said to the nation of Israel as he brought them up out of the land of Egypt, 
of the land of slavery and bondage. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, you and your children after you, your posterity into, into generation after generation. All you need to do is trust me. All you need to do is follow me, keep my commands, worship me as the one true God. I will be your God and you will be a people to me. I'll be your father, you will be my children. The promises that God gave to the people of Israel were abundantly clear. If you go back and you want to study these promises, you can look at the books of Exodus and Numbers and and Deuteronomy and even into the book of Joshua and you will see God caring for his people, God providing a home for his people. I will care for you. I I will love you. And it's interesting that in this particular passage that the man who abandons God's promise and and goes to a distant country when he sees some trouble actually lives in a town named Bethlehem, which translated means house of bread. (laughs) Isn't it ironic that there's a famine in the land to to even where they're feeling the pinch in the breadbasket of the country And instead of turning to God and saying, God, save us, God, redeem us, Elimelech takes matters into his own hand, and Naomi's husband looks and says, the cupboard's bare in Bethlehem. There's nothing here. And instead of crying out to God, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go and I'll live among some of the people who are our worst enemies and some of the most blatant false worshipers of false gods that there are. I'll go live in Moab and I'll take care of my family. How is that a good decision? How is that a decision of faith. How is that the answer to, to the problem? I don't know if you remember, but back in, in 2001, when we were initially engaged in Afghanistan, uh, there was this name, John Walker, that came to the front of the newspapers. He was an American citizen who had gone to live with the Taliban to fight against his country. As it turns out, it, it seems that, that that was a bad decision. He certainly is a person whose name is disdained in our culture. someone upon whom we are critical. How, how could you be a traitor to your country? How could you be a traitor to, to freedom? And here we have a Limelech who, if you just read the passage and you don't necessarily have the context, say, well, he's just looking out for his family, right? No. <laughs> he's ignoring the promises and the commands of God. And he's going to, he's going to fix it himself. And then notice what happens. He passes away, but his two sons marry. And you think, well, maybe there's some hope there. Malon and Chilion, they they take wives and they'll be able to take care of mom. They'll be able to take care of Naomi. And maybe everything will work out. And for whatever reason, we don't know whether it was a pestilence or a farming accident or, or what. We don't understand what happened. But these two sons died. So this woman is left in a destitute place. My first observation is a lack of trust leads to tragedy. But notice as we move along that Naomi is is on a bit of a spiritual journey as much as a physical journey, and and she hears a message of relief, but there's also a bit of resentment. In verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So Naomi hears the good news. God has, has done what he promised to do. God has been faithful to who he said he would be, and he's provided for his people. We should, we should go back. We should return. I should return. And in the process of things, again, we're flying through this. We're not reading the whole story. Uh, Ruth insists on going with Naomi, and Orpha decides that she'll stay in Moab. So now we're down to two. Now we're down to Naomi and Ruth, and we pick up the story towards the end of chapter one when they come back to Naomi's hometown. They come back to Bethlehem. And they're entering into the village in verses 19 through 21. It says this. 
So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. You may have a little note in your Bible there that explains those names. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. So Naomi is relieved to hear that God has been faithful to his promises, but she is also bitter. It's the decision that my husband made and I made to go to Moab. It was our choice, but we're going to blame God for the outcome of our choice. How many times have I done that in my life? How many times have I said, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do, but, but I'm, I'm going I'm to do it my way. And then when it doesn't go well, I get upset with God. And that's exactly what, what Naomi's doing. She is resentful. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. How has the Almighty offended Naomi? How has the Almighty done something against his character? He gave her every promise in the world. She turned her back on him. How is it God's fault? And yet when I read this passage, I go, guilty. <laughs> That's me. It's so much more convenient if it's God's fault. It's so much easier if I can ignore my culpability and just look at what God hasn't done for me. But how does God respond to that? How did God react when he heard these words that Naomi was going to speak? How does God react when you blame him? How does God react when I blame God? Does he turn his back on us? He says, you know what, I've just, you know, my folks used to say I've had it up to here, you know, and you kind of wanted to see how much more was, was above their hand, you know. And there gets more where we say, I, I've had it up to here, I can't take it anymore. Is that how God's response? Well, my next observation in this text comes in chapter 2 with a fortunate coincidence. Look at verses 1 through 3. So we're back at home, we're bitter, we're angry, and we're destitute. We're, we're without anything. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, don't miss that phrase, of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. So Naomi says, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And as she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech, it just so happened that as Ruth was gleaning, now gleaning is what the poorest of the poor did. God gave very specific instructions to the people of Israel that when you reaped in your field, when you brought in, when you gathered the harvest, okay, you left the outer 10% of the fields alone, and that's where the poorest of the poor could come, and that's how you would demonstrate God's generosity to his people. You would be generous on behalf of God towards the very poorest of the poor. So Ruth saying, let me go glean, says, Naomi, we got no options. <laughs> We're at rock bottom. So I'm going to go glean. And so Naomi, knowing that they need some sustenance to get by, says, go ahead, daughter. I want you to, uh, to try and help us out. And as it just so happened, the author says, what astounding coincidence that she happened to find herself in the field of Boaz. Is it a coincidence? Perhaps, perhaps not. But look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2 as we see the generous character of our, the generous character of our God lived out 
in the life of Boaz. Boaz notices Ruth and he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And he goes on to to give her other promises. And before she leaves, at the end of the day, he takes what she's harvested, what she's been able to gather, and he adds to it. He pours on top of her. He's extraordinarily generous. He's extraordinarily gracious. And Ruth says, why are you being so nice to me? He says, I've heard your reputation. I've heard how you've cared for your mother-in-law. And I see it with my own eyes. I want to be that kind of generous person too. The generous character of our God. Here is, here is Ruth, who is representing Naomi, who, who has, has rebelled against God and, and is now bitter against God, and he's meeting the need. He's being gracious, and he's being compassionate. And, and I want to interject just one small application here before we go on, and it's simply this. Do you and I as disciples of Jesus, if we are here this morning claiming to follow Christ, do we look like our God? When people interact with us, would people say God is a generous God? God is a compassionate God. God is a caring God. Boaz isn't the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story, as we're going to see. But Boaz is a faithful servant of God. And he gets it, and he's applying his theology to his life. And he is ministering uh, the grace and the mercy of God to very specific people in very specific uh, struggles and poverty. Is that what our lives look like at Green Tree Community Church? So there's evidence of some hope here that Boaz may in some way be used by God to care for this family. Look at verses 19 and 20. So Ruth has come home, and she's got this huge, you know, kind of bushel. I don't know if it's on her head or not, but she's got all this, a lot more than she should have. And in verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Naomi's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, we should have a little bit enough to get by maybe till tomorrow. We've got, I don't know, there's probably a month's worth of grain in this, in this bushel. And she said to her, the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, he's one of our close relatives. He is our Redeemer. There's a possibility for hope here. The story turns at this point. This is kind of, kind of the fulcrum of the, of the book. It's where things begin to look up very specifically. Naomi puts two and two together and says, this may be a blessing from the hand of God. Naomi's heart is beginning to change. She's beginning to come to some realization of God's grace and God's mercy. But where there is hope, there's also a question mark. Will Boaz come through? Has he just been nice to them for a day? Or is there actually a hope that, that Naomi's life and Ruth's lives will actually be saved? Because as, as great as a gift he gave, you know, it was like two-thirds of a bushel full of, of, of wheat. As great as a gift that was, it's only going to last a certain amount of time, and they're going to still be destitute. Is there a way that, that maybe there is a fuller redemption in this story? We'll skip over to chapter 4. I'm going to kind of ignore the the entire interaction between Ruth and Boaz in the story just for the sake of time. And listen again for the the price of redemption. Listen to to what Boaz is willing to do. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then verse 9 and 10. 
Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. So he turned aside and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So we're getting ready to have kind of a public hearing. We're getting ready to kind of have something that we need some witnesses who are going to say, yeah, this is the agreement that has been reached. Verse 3, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. She's selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elder of my, peel, if you, of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then skip ahead to verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilon and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Long story short, Boaz was second in line to help. There was somebody closer. There was a closer relative. Again, if you go back and you read in the book of Deuteronomy, you will see all this laid out. It's called the kinsman redeemer. And the idea is that those who who have a husband pass away will be cared for, that they won't be left destitute, that they won't find themselves uh, without a hope. And Boaz knows that it's his responsibility if this guy in front of him doesn't uh, decide to redeem. But it's clear in this conversation that this other redeemer who's closer can't have anything to do with it under his notion because it will somehow affect uh, his inheritance. In other words, the price is too great to pay. So here we have one who should redeem. And notice that his name's never mentioned. You don't, it's not George, the kinsman. You never hear the guy's name. It's not worthy of mention. Why? Because he doesn't have the generous heart of his God. He's not worth remembering because he wouldn't pay the cost. Never worship a God who won't pay the cost. But here is Boaz who says, I I know the cost and I'm willing to pay it because it's the right thing to do. Because it reflects the grace and compassion of my God. When, uh, When our daughter Katie got married, I wanted to demonstrate through a gift Uh, to her and also give to Richard our love and affection for them and our support of their relationship with one another. So I I really thought long and hard, and and I got Katie a a really pretty and and very, very nice um, necklace for her gift. And then as as I gave her that gift, and she was crying, and we were all crying, and we were having a great time, and it it really was a beautiful necklace. Um, Not because I picked it out. Somebody else picked it out. Um, I just got to pay for it. I gave Richard his gift. I said, Richard, this is the, the very best gift I could give you. I think it will help your, your marriage immensely. And it was a set of Bose Wave Radio, a lot more money than I would pay headset that you can listen to music and it drowns all the rest of the noise out in the house. 
I said, Richard, every once in a while, he's going to need to put these on, and it'll really help your marriage. I spent a lot of money for those two gifts, but you know what? It was, it, it, it was nothing. It was no money at all. I didn't sit there and go, oh, I can't believe i got to write this check. Or, you know. I, I was thrilled to do it. Boaz reflects the nature of our God who says, I'm thrilled to redeem, and I am willing to pay the cost no matter what it might be. In Ruth chapter 4, in verses 13 through 16, we see the first impact, the first result of this, of this gracious act where we see that there is not one new life, but there are actually two new lives. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women who, who kind of made a little bit of fun of Naomi when she came back to town are now singing a different tune. Now the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons having given birth to him. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So we have the birth of a son, so we have a new life there, but now Naomi is redeemed. It's come full circle. Rebellion has turned to redemption. A a fearful heart has turned to a heart of confidence in God's promises and in his power and in in his willingness to fulfill his promises. A life or a heart of bitterness has turned to a heart of thankfulness. But there's more to the story than that. Listen to how the book of Ruth ends. Because Bethlehem is, quite frankly, a very obscure town. It's kind of like Abilene, Kansas. There's nothing in Abilene, Kansas to speak of, so to speak. And if you're from Abilene, please don't take offense. I don't mean it in a bad way. But there's one thing that Abilene's known for. Real quick quiz. Scott, I know you know. What's it? Right? Eisenhower, right? Eisenhower's birthplace, all right? So you're going through Kansas, and there's no reason to stop in Abilene except for Eisenhower was born there. And, I, and we stopped there a couple times. You see the cool general staff car that, that he drove around in Europe. It's really kind of a neat display. But Bethlehem, you wouldn't go out of your way to go to Bethlehem to see anything. It's kind of an out-of-the-way town except for this, verses 18 and 20. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Who cares about Perez? Well, Perez was the father of Hezron. That should be thrilling information for you. Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. So that was the name of this little baby, Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. We go from obscurity to prominence. Bethlehem is now the home of the king the great king of Israel. I wonder how the book of Ruth was was passed on to the people of Israel. And I think, although I'm not, there's no way to know for sure, I think David sat down one day and said, let me tell you about my (laughs) great-granddaddy. Let me tell you how this whole thing got started. None of you have ever heard of this guy named Boaz, but let me me tell you what he did. And God used that to, to put it into scripture. And so this little town of Bethlehem that is obscure and of no importance whatsoever now is the home of the great king david excuse me 
Which brings me, finally, to Matthew chapter 2. I know you were wondering how we were going to make the connection. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with them. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we go from the hometown of the king, the great King David, to being the hometown of the king of kings and lord of lords. The town that Elimelech left because the cupboard was bare. And in closing, I simply turn your attention to John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus is speaking. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The house of bread. The Lord Jesus himself offers life to all who believe. I don't know what your situation is this morning, but I would dare say every person in this room can think of a moment when we have rebelled against God and blamed it on him. <laughs> Where we found it convenient to say it's God's fault that I'm in this pickle instead of taking ownership for our own sinfulness and our own rebellion. I, I would dare say that every person in this room can think of an example in their life. I can certainly think of many in my own life. How does God react? Does he turn his back? Does he walk away? No, our gracious Father. Isn't going to change the menu. <laughs> it's not going to be something other than, than the Lord Jesus himself. But God provides the bread of heaven that saves and nourishes our soul. The cupboard is full of grace. It's exactly what we need. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your powerful and redemptive word. For your promises that never fail even when we fail miserably. And Father, I pray for myself and for my, my friends and my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, we know that, that as we heard last week, Emmanuel, God with us, you're, you're in, in it with us in the brokenness of this world, but it's so much deeper than that. You're in us even in our rebellion. You don't leave us and you don't forsake us. You don't condone it. You, you judge it as guilty, but you provide a redeemer. And Father, I pray that, that we would belong to that Redeemer today. Father, I pray if there's any person in this room that is outside the kingdom of God, that they would simply surrender and say, Lord Jesus, be my bread of life. My only hope is in you. And Father, for those of us who call ourselves disciples, I pray that we would live in that redemption this week, that our lives would make a difference, that you would give us the opportunity to impact someone who feels this hopelessness, who feels that they've outsinned the grace of God, that you would allow us to show his compassion and his grace and his mercy, that the cupboard is full of grace for all who will come and partake of the Lord Jesus through faith. We pray in his name. Amen.